Hi, this is Dawson McAllister. I am standing just a few feet away from where I'm going to be buried when I die. This is the first time I've come up here and looked at it for a long time. It forces me to think about what's really important. A great thinker and philosopher was asked, what is the greatest mystery of life? He said, the brevity of life. My son is plenty young. And he pulled out in front of an 18-wheeler. In a matter of seconds, he was fighting for his very life. If a few miracles had to take a place, he'd be in this cemetery right now. The Bible says that man's life is like a breath. Watch the breath, form a little vapor, and then it's over and it's gone. You say, Dawson, what, what are you trying to say? What's the point here? The point is very simple. Live life the very best you can. And one of the best ways you can is to live for others. Love others, help others. In this few moments of life that we have, let's make them count together. Live each day as though it were your last. Because your last day will come. I remember the day my dad died. Actually, I remember the exact moment my father took his last breath. Myself, my siblings, some of his grandkids were surrounding the bed and the house that he was living at. And my sister, the nurse, announced very calmly, time of death, 3.32 p.m. And we cried and we held each other. My dad was born in Winona, Minnesota, September 8, 1927. He eventually had five brothers and two sisters, a very large family. In fact, as a result, he quit school when he was 13 years old to drive a milk truck to help support the family. My father served in the military during the Korean War, and that ultimately led him from Minnesota out to California, where he spent the rest of his life. He was married to three women in his life, the second being my mom. My dad worked hard. He spent his life as a plumber. And he was a very, very hardworking man. But he was also a very, very hard-drinking man. And there never seemed to be enough money at our, our house, and that, that caused a lot of conflict and tension. And my mom and dad would fight often, usually physically. 84 years of life, some of it good and fun, much of it, very, very hard. And then just like that, it was over. And I just summarized an entire life in 10 sentences. Do you ever think about how fast our lives go by? Psalm 39 asks us to consider this brevity of life. It's a hard thing to think about. I, I think we'd rather think about the here and now, the good times, our hopes for the future. But every time we think about life, we somehow have to consider how fast it goes by. And that theme, the brevity of life, runs deep throughout our scripture. So our scripture, our psalm for today, Psalm 39, David says it this way. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. 
You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. And David adds later on in Psalm 103, Our days on earth are like grass. Like wildflowers we bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we had never been here. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, also chimes in on the idea of brevity brevity of life when he says this, In the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can best be spent? Our lives are like a shadow. Who can tell what will happen on this earth after we are gone? In ancient, that's that's beautiful. I'm hearing that rain. I did the creation talk last time. In ancient Constantinople, the day that they chose a new emperor was also the day that that emperor chose the marble slab for his tombstone. It was a reminder. Yes, you will lead, but it won't be for long. And so while you're leading, lead well. Lead well. Job has something to say about the brevity of life as well. He says this, My days fly faster than a weaver's shuttle. They end without hope. Oh God, remember that my life is but a breath, and I will never again feel happiness. You see me now, but not for long. You will look for me, but I will be gone. Just as a cloud dissipates and vanishes, those who die will not come back. They are gone forever from their home, never to be seen again. Then in the New Testament, the Apostle James also talks about brevity of life, and he says this, Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go to a certain town, we're going to stay there a year, we will do business there, make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog, or another version says a mist. It's like the mist. It's here for a little while, and then it's gone. Dying wildflowers, breath, shadow, clouds, fog, mist. It is crazy how fast our lives go by. Wasn't it just a few years ago that I was graduating high school? Could it possibly have been 40? And I'm sure it was only a couple of months ago I was marrying my young bride, Catherine. How can it be 33 years? And what happened to my little kids? They're having little kids themselves. What was troubling David and the other biblical writers that caused them to address this issue of how short life can be so often in the Psalms and in the rest of the books of the Bible? We're looking at Psalm 39, but in 38, if you read that, David is very sick to the point of death. And throughout Psalm 38 and then 39 and 40, where it says he's waiting patiently on the Lord, he's reflecting on his life. He's crying out to God. And he, along with both Job and it seems particularly Solomon, are frustrated. But what are they frustrated with? Job says it this way. Is not all human life a struggle? How many of you can relate to that? And Solomon declares, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? But David, David cries out to God in a little bit of a different way. David is sickened by the fact that in this quickly moving, soon-to-be-gone life, he has spent so much of it 
in sin. David is so frustrated, in fact, that he doesn't want to say anything about this, especially around those who are not godly people. David was concerned that his words of frustration might be misunderstood or even misused by those people. To them, his words would seem like a criticism of God or a criticism of God's ways. He starts out the psalm this way. I said to myself, I will watch what I do and not sin in what I say. I will hold my tongue when the ungodly are around me. But as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil within me grew worse. The more I thought about it, the hotter I got, igniting a fire of words. So finally David can hold it in no long, longer, and he explodes. But when he does speak, he speaks just to God. And this is when he talks in the verses we already read about this brevity of life. David wants to be reminded how brief on t- our time on earth is and that his days are numbered. As I was preparing this, it seemed likely to me that if these great biblical characters, if they struggled with the frustrations of how hard life can be, how short it seems, and how much of it we spend in sin, then perhaps we all struggle with this as well. Am I right? We understand that life is hard and it's all too short. So like David is going to mention, I believe that we try and compensate and attempt to find happiness in two particular areas. The first one is work, work or busyness. Now, if you do your notes, this is where you can start filling a few of those things in. We try to find happiness with our work or or being busy. And David has it right when he says in 6a, we are merely moving shadows. All our busy rushing ends in nothing. It ends in nothing. I was checking out a couple uh, new books that are documenting Americans' work habits. And they have found evidence that many Americans are overstressed and overworked. Well, that wasn't a hard study, was it? But it's in trends that aren't necessarily measured with a punch clock or a time card, they say. Trends such as road rage, workplace shootings, the rising number of children in daycare, and increasing demands for after-school activities to occupy children whose parents are too busy or they're still at work. And all this busyness, all this work, it, in, it leads to increased anxiety in our lives. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, I've decided I don't want to work there. <laughs> Not where I'm going. Over 40 million adults in the U.S. are affected by some sort of an anxiety disorder. And these disorders cost the United States $42 billion a year to try and help take care of them. Much of our anxiety comes, around, comes from us running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Somehow trying, if we scramble hard enough, we'll make a better life for ourselves somehow. And yet David reminds us all our busy rushing ends in Nothing. There's actually a new word in the vocabulary of the Japanese people. It's the word karoshi. Karoshi. And it literally means dying from overwork. Dying from overwork. Men in Japan are working so hard and so long that they are dropping dead because of their work. Now, I first read about this concept in a great, fantastic book called Thrilled to Death, How the Endless Pursuit of Pleasure is Leaving Us Numb by Dr. Archibald Hart. 
And so I had this, this uh, word in my mind, and I, I had the opportunity to speak to 80 high school students this summer up in Humboldt County. Uh, but of those 80 high school students, 20 of them were high school students from Tokyo, Japan, with their two senseis, or their two teachers. So I pulled one of the teachers aside, and I said, hey, I was reading this book, and I ran across this word, and, it's, and, and these guys, are, are, they, are they really dying from overwork? And she goes, oh, Karoshi, it's the real deal. It's really happening. She says, we actually have this little thing going around with the women in Japan. If your husband comes home from work, and he walks in the house, and he dies, drag him outside your front door, close the door, and then call the authorities. Because if the man dies from Kiroshi, the woman gets a certificate to hang on her wall and some compensation. If he dies in the house, she gets nothing. Take him outside, and then you'll get the compensation. How crazy is that, that they've had to invent a word that means I've died because I worked too hard. So David says we attempt to find happiness through our work or our busyness. The second way that he says we try to find ha- uh, happiness is the word wealth, wealth. And again, David nails it on the head by proclaiming in 6b, we heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. According to Time Magazine, I love statistics and facts, so I'm giving you a bunch of these today. According to Time Magazine, this was July of this summer, uh, it was called The Pursuit of Happiness. And they said that in 2012, Americans spent $118 billion on travel abroad, $25 billion attending sporting events, $11 billion on movie tickets. We buy an average of $140 billion worth of recreational equipment and spend over $200 billion a year on electronics. We have so much stuff that our drawers and our closets And our garages are packed. And so we take all our stuff and we take it to what we call a storage facility (laughs) where we spend money so someone else can babysit our stuff that sits there. I found out that we actually have over 46,000 storage facilities in the United States. We got to put our stuff somewhere. Here's a crazy example of what I'm talking about. Huguette Clark may be one of the wealthiest persons you've never heard of. She's certainly one of the most mysterious. The 104-year-old heiress owns sprawling estates in California and Connecticut, as well as one of the largest apartments on New York's Fifth Avenue. But according to a report from NBC's The Today Show, Ms. Clark hasn't been seen in her homes in decades. Reporters Bill Dedman and Bob Dotson investigated her whereabouts and found that Ms. Clark spends her time in a drab hospital room. Those ordinary surroundings stand in stark contrast to her fortune, which came largely from her father, Senator William Andrews Clark of Montana. He owned mines, railroads, and banks, and he passed it along to Huguette. Of course, the world is full of once great estates that have gone to seed. Ms. Clark's homes are not to be included. Her $100 million Santa Barbara home, where she hasn't visited in decades, has been kept up beautifully. As for her Connecticut mansion, it's as immaculate as it is untouched. Believe it or not, Ms. Clark has never even visited it. 
She apparently elected to move to the unnamed hospital to be more comfortable. Relatives and former acquaintances explained that Ms. Clark changed drastically after her mother passed away. She withdrew from society and chose never to come back. In the book of James, the apostle tells us what's going to happen to us and all of our stuff that we've put in our storage facilities. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. Many of us here are going to say, well, I'm off the hook when it comes to James talking about the rich. That's not me. Recent statistic. Only 9% of the 7 billion people that live on our planet own a car. If you or your family own a car, not two or three, like most of us, if you own a car, you are considered potentially in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. But I want to make something really clear. This isn't about rich. This isn't about having money. I hear having money is a good thing. <laughs> I'd like to try that sometime. <laughs> Thank God for rich Christians, rich believers who have supported ministries and missions and churches around the globe. This isn't about having money. It's about your attitude about your money and how you're trying to find satisfaction in the world. You can't take it with you. Remember the old saying? You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. <laughs> and yet for all our achievements, we're still not a happy and satisfied people. According to the World Happiness Report, now I want to work for these people. According to the World Happiness Report, published by the Earth Institute of Columbia University, the U.S. ranks 23rd on a 50-country happiness index. Far behind, number one, Iceland. You can start packing now. Number two, New Zealand. Number three, Denmark. But we in the happiness index are still trailing countries like Singapore, Malaysia, Tanzania, Panama, Mexico, and Vietnam. Crazy. The turning point for David comes in verse 7. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? David realized that a fulfilling life was not to be found in his labors nor in his possessions. His answer is, my only hope is in you. My only hope is in you. This is exactly what our theme has been in this series throughout the summer. Lift, looking up for perspective. This is our 10th and last psalm. We've been studying this entire summer. Throughout that time, we've consistently seen that our help comes from God, even when life doesn't make sense. We've been challenged to trust Him in times of despair, to wait on Him, 
to put our hope in God even when things don't seem fair, how to recognize our sin and turn from it. And last week, Ron explained how to come clean after a fall. Our hope is not to be found around us. It's not in our busyness, our activities, or our finances. Our only hope is when we change our perspective, when we look up, and when we see Jesus. One writer said, this doesn't mean you are my last hope. Instead, David is saying, you are the one who gives meaning to life. Nothing else does because everything else is passing. You alone are eternal, and you have made for me lasting fellowship with yourself. I am restless until I find my rest in you. David, in this psalm, actually begs God to rescue him from his sin and to go easy on him in his life. In 39, 8 to 11, it says, Rescue me from my rebellion. Do not let fools mock me. I'm silent before you. I won't say a word, for my punishment is from you. But please stop striking me. I'm exhausted by the blows from your hand. When you discipline us for our sins, you consume like a moth what is precious to us. Each of us is but a breath. Have you been there? Have you ever reached a point where you're not sure you wanted to keep going at the pace and with the hardship that you were currently experiencing? Have you grown tired and weary of the troubles in life? Have you been there? Have you been so lost in sin that you almost expected, as David says of God, the blows from your hand? I have. There's days when I wonder why God puts up with me. My foolishness, my shenanigans, and my sin. Sometimes, honestly, I'm afraid to stand in a crowd of people. Because I'm worried that when God sends his lightning bolt to take me out, that those around me might become casualties as well. I've been there. What has been your answer in those moments of hardship, of pain, and of sin? Work more? Keep yourself busy so you won't have to think about everything that is going on in your life? Pile up possessions, houses, boats, and cars in hopes that the, the present happiness will be stronger than the pain you're experiencing? Or have you come to the place that David arrived in this psalm? A place of complete, utter exhaustion. And finally, surrender. My only Hope is in you. So if we're not to seek out more work, and we're not to try and accumulate more wealth, how should we spend our time here on this earth? What might David and all the biblical writers encourage us to do? Well, David, in Psalm 39, 
Uh, in Psalm 139, got to jump up 100. He presents uh, an interesting thought when he says this in Psalm 139. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Every day in my life was recorded in your book. God has so ordered so numbered our lives that we will neither die a day sooner nor live a day longer than what has already been recorded in God's book. And yet we spend so much of our time worrying about this short time on planet Earth. And yet Moses in Psalm 90 says this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. So if God has already arranged for our days, what does Moses mean for us to number our days? Moses means to count each day as if it were our last. To live each day with the full potential that God has for us. To wake up each day and say, this is day one. I will count this as day one. I don't know if I'll get day two. So I will take day one and I will do what you would want me to do with that day, God. That's what Moses is challenging us to do. And the Bible is full of passages that tell us how to number and how to live each day. So I'm going to give you some encouragement to you from the scriptures on how to get the most out of life. Now, little side note, I know that some people get real frustrated if you don't get all the fill-ins filled in. And I'm going to just blow through these and, and throw these out to you. So get your pens ready. Here we go. The first one, don't worry about tomorrow. Matthew 6, 34. God takes care of the birds and the flowers. He'll take care of us. Serve others as Jesus did. Mark 10, 45, one of my favorite passages. Jesus is our example, and he came to serve, not to be served. Fellowship with other believers from Acts 2, 42. Join a Twin Cities Church community group today. They're great times of teaching and fellowship. But listen, if for no other reason to join a group, remember this, misery loves company. Get together. Be miserable with your fellow believers. Figure life out and move on. Another one, don't be angry from Ephesians 3.26. Instead, love each other, 1 John 3.11. Angry people are not happy, not satisfied people. Fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12.2. He is the originator of our faith. He will sustain us through the hard times. Be joyful, pray, be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. That verse concludes with, this is God's will for you. It is God's will for you to be joyful. Imitate God, Ephesians 5, 1. In everything you do, following the example of Christ. Live in a way that pleases God, 
1 Thessalonians 4.1. The verse goes on to say, God's will for you is to be holy. This list could go on and on, uh, and I, I want to challenge you to perhaps do a study of your own. I just thought of verses I already knew. I flipped through the Bible a little bit, and it was, it was, they were just jumping out to me. This is how we are to live our day-by-day numbered life existence. Do some study on your own. Read the, around each of these and spend some time looking at it. But remember, finally, due to a short and fragile lives that we have, do not assume there will even be a tomorrow. Do not assume there will even be a tomorrow. David ends Psalm 39 with a prayer. He says this, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cries for help. Don't ignore my tears, for I am your guest, a traveler passing through as my ancestors were before me. Leave me alone so I can smile again before I am gone and exist no more. The word guest or traveler, other versions use alien and stranger. They're Old Testament terms for foreign residents who were in Israel. Now, these people were to be treated well, but they were prohibited from owning land. Why? Because they were not permanent residents. They were pilgrims who were here for a while and then would be moving on. And guess what? So are we. We are just a passing through this life and God has numbered our days. So let's give each one of those days back to him. I spent the last year of my father's life visiting him once a month. Now, I had my own selfish reasons. We were not very close. And honestly, I didn't want to feel guilty when he died. I didn't want to feel like I hadn't done my job. I was just trying to get off the hook. But out of those visits came what I believe is the first real relationship that I had with my dad. I remember taking him out to lunch and asking him about Korea and what he did and what he experienced. He'd never in his life shared a word of that with me before that time. I asked him what it was like to grow up on the farm and to have all these siblings running around. I asked him how he met my mom. Ooh, that's a story for another time. <laughs> so thankful I had that time. So grateful that even out of my selfish thing that God used it. So I have a question for you. What would you feel bad about today if you didn't have a tomorrow? What would you feel bad about today if you didn't have a tomorrow? Maybe it's something you are doing that you need to stop. Certain sins, perhaps. Maybe it's something you haven't done and you need to, like perhaps restoring a relationship. What is it today you'd feel bad about if you did not have it tomorrow? Twice in Psalm 39, David refers to our lives as a breath. That's a breath. And each time it's followed by that word, Selah. 
Selah, it's a musical term. It means to pause, to reflect. Some writers say the word even means to just take time to praise. And I thought, how appropriate that when David says our life is like a breath, we are supposed to pause and take a breath and think about our life and praise God for the days that we do have. So maybe as we consider the brevity of life, each of us need to stop, to think, to pray, if needed, change, and praise God for the days that we are given. Our days are numbered. Let's use them wisely. And as we sing this song, Take My Life, so powerful, I want you to pause, take a deep breath, And consider what God would have you do after hearing this message today. Oh, my. 
pray. Here I am. Take my life all for you. God, our lives are all too brief, and and you made it that way. You designated how long all of us generally and each of us specifically will live. May we learn, Lord, to give each day to you, to count that as day one and to live it to our fullest, to live it the way that you would want us to live. It's a great challenge, Lord. Help us to wake up each morning looking to you for strength and for guidance through the hard times, through our sin times. May we constantly come back, come back, come back to you. Help us to do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.